I want to give you the prelude to the homilies today. It's something of a commercial, but it needs to be said. Today I'm telling my story. It's the story of many people, but it's, uh, what I'm realizing as I go to tell it is that it's impossible to tell my story without telling a dozen other stories, other people's stories. And when you tell other people's stories, you run several risks. One, you can appear or sound disingenuous where their story is concerned or unsympathetic. And I don't intend that at all. The other is that you can be factually incorrect. And I don't intend that either, although it's possible that I will misspeak some detail in the next bit. It's also possible when you tell other people's stories that you will... Uh, expose a fact of their existence or speak to a truth in their lives that's been painful or difficult in some way. And that can't be helped in some ways. And I want you to know that I don't carry that lightly. As many of you know, I am adopted. And adopted since birth... My family has three children. I'm the oldest. I have a sister, Carrie, who is almost four years younger than I am, also adopted, and a sister, Marcy, who's ten years younger than I am, also adopted. We're all adopted from different families, from different parts of the United States, and what I have been experiencing over the last year that I haven't really shared is the newness of reunion with my birth family. Now, my sisters found their birth families years ago. And people would ask me, are you curious about, you know, that? yeah, I'm curious, but it's okay. I don't, I don't really have a burden to, to look anybody up. And yet I found that I was emotional every time I would see a movie with an adoption story, like Antoine Fisher. Anybody see Antoine Fisher? That one got me. Uh, anyway, a number of, of these things would come up. Well, one day in Hollywood, we went to a taping of the Dr. Phil show, and it was adoption reunions. Can you imagine the one time I go to Dr. Phil, and it's an adoption reunion show? So it's been in the back of my mind through the years, and I, I spoke to my mother. Ever since I was a child, I've known the story, or a story anyway. It's the story she knew, and that was that my... Uh, mother was young, uh, that she was not married to my father, but that he had been killed in a, I think the, the original version of the story was a motorcycle accident. How adventuresome and dashing and fun, I know. And that uh, he had been a university student, an engineer, dark hair, about six feet tall, so forth, and some of these details. And that was about all I knew. He was dead, she was alive somewhere, and, and uh, that was the story I was raised with. Later, I think, when I you know, just inquired again, it was a car accident that he had done. But whatever it was, he was dead and had been killed in some kind of vehicle accident. Now, I need to give you this commercial. In all fairness to me and my family, I'm not big on politically correct. But in this particular case, I'm going to give you some language. My real parents are the people who adopted me, the Honus family. I am a Honus through and through. They are the people who raised me, loved me, taught me everything I know, etc. So when, when we speak of parentage, 
please do not say, now, when did you meet your real parents? Uh, My real parents are the parents that have known me all my life. You can refer to my uh, birth parents as birth parents or as Mary Ann or Jesse. Is that fair enough? Okay, great. Well, uh, I was adopted at four days old, I think, is when I was taken from the hospital. This was back in the days when they actually had hospital stays associated with OB. Um, Now you give birth, and the minute they've cut the cord, they wrap the baby up, shove it in the mother's lap, and wheel her out to a wheelchair and send her home. Um, It didn't used to be like that. Women would have a baby and be in the hospital four or five, six days, and uh, the nursery would care for the baby and help them along. I think for the four days I was in the hospital, the total medical bill came to $144 and some change. Times have changed just a little bit. In any case, I was, uh, I was born in Washington, San, and Hospital in Tacoma Park, Maryland, and that is just one piece of the puzzle I'm going to talk a bit about later. But I wanted to get that just sort of piece out. A lot of you know that part about me already. But it's going to uh, unfold now as we read our texts and go through the rest of the story. Good morning. morning. Scripture today comes from Genesis 24, 1 through 4. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go into my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Along the way in in, uh, my journey, my parents about five, six years ago gave me a packet that they had had on file since I was born. And in that packet was the name of, uh, that was on the bassinet in the uh, birth room. In that packet was a letter that uh, uh, was actually signed by my birth mother who had uh, given up her rights. Um, there were a number of things that gave me clues as to the identity, and I began with that packet to do some Google searches and that sort of thing and really came up with nothing because I was looking for Maryland or Tacoma Park people with my mother's name, Stoneberger, and I was finding none. So after doing some searching for myself um, and not really getting anywhere and not having a lot of motivation to do so, uh, one day my wife said to me, are you you sure you don't want to pursue this? And I figured... I would have to hire a private investigator. It would be very inexpensive. You can't predict the results of these things because what you don't think about when you're not adopted is how much you could be messing with somebody's life to show up and say, here I am. There could be a big deal surrounding that. So with all of that, I'd kind of been very cautious and and not sure I wanted to do it, but Jill had been reading the recorder. Do you ever read your recorder? I, almost, I, I, I confess she's the one in our family who reads it and then passes the news along to me. And she saw an advertisement for Howard Swenson Private Investigations, and she said, can I call him? 
And I thought about the money, and I thought about the implications, and I thought about how all my life I had said no, I wasn't really sure I wanted to do this, and I said yes. And that was the night before our anniversary. She called him. He called me back that evening. I spoke to him on the phone. I gave him what details I had from the packet my parents had given me. He went online and within 15 minutes had a name, address, and phone number for me. Now, that's because private investigators have access to law enforcement databases, which include credit card records. So if you've ever used a credit card under your correct name, they will know the information associated with that usage and be able to find you. Now, I'm not scared by this. It's just the way our world works. But it was amazing to me that I had Googled and had talked to lots of people because there's another interesting point. My sisters and I, all being adopted, have adoption stories and have talked to other people who are adopted. I grew up in a town of adopted people. The Olsons had five adopted children. The Winchesters had two adopted children. The Fausts had two adopted children. The Honuses had three adopted children. I mean, the church was filled with adoptive families. It was really an incredible nexus. So there was nothing unusual, nothing un. You know, nothing odd at all about growing up in these circumstances. And various ones found their birth parents and various ones didn't. But now I knew a name and a phone number and an address. And so I asked him to please contact her and see if she was willing to be found. So the next day he did. He recorded the phone call and he called me and I was on my way to a meeting. And he played it for me as I was on this way to the meeting the day of our 18th wedding anniversary. Well, I called her later that evening. Needless to say, there was so much energy and emotion surrounding all of this that my wife and I never properly celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary. But she did give that up for me. And uh, I had made contact. Now, the text that we just read is in Genesis, and it's the story of Abraham finding a wife for his son from among his people. I had met Jill in church in Visalia as an intern my first Sabbath there. She sat by somebody else and then came over and sat by me. And my roommate from college nudged me and said, I think she's making a move, buddy. The minute I saw her, these words came to my mind. That works. I didn't know she was dating somebody else at the time, but we flirted all through Sabbath school. I spoke. She thought I had totally ripped off um, Phillips. J.B. Phillips, your God is too small. I had never read the book. And within a couple weeks, we were dating She broke up with her boyfriend the next day. I should include that part of the story. Lest you think her a two-timer. We were engaged six months later and married uh, 13 months after we met. Well, in getting to meet her parents, who are here today, I found out that her father, Don, was born in Washington, San, and Hospital. That his great-aunt had worked there in the kitchen, in fact, was head of kitchen, and had produced the cookbook that they used there that was circulated back in that day, kind of like our women's cookbook here. 
Now, Aunt Myrta was a formidable cook. She was really something. And for Thanksgiving, we had Aunt Myrta's recipe pumpkin pie. And if you haven't had an Aunt Myrta's recipe pumpkin pie, that is something to behold. Now, I'm jumping all over here a little bit but because it's so hard to tell this story because all the connections that I'm trying to pull into this so that you, at the end of the day, will see how hope has worked in my life and what, what God is doing. But I found out that my father-in-law was born there, that his aunt had worked there, that there were family connections to that area for, for Jill's side of the family, and mine was still a big question mark. I didn't know. Now, interestingly enough, in the packet that I told you my mother had given me was a newsletter from Washington Sanon Hospital, dated November of 63, and it showed a man on the cover named James Amos Stoneberger, and he had been the employee of the year, I think, or maybe it was just the month. Heaven help them if they made him only employee of the month. He worked there 50 years, and he had my mother's maiden name, so I knew he was connected in that newsletter had ended up in my parents' hands somehow because of these connections. Well, turns out that he worked at Tacoma Park Sanitarium. I call it Tacoma Park. It's Washington Sanon Hospital and had worked in several different places. He had worked mostly laundry, but had also done some work in the kitchen and on grounds. So that was one piece of connection in this puzzle that was coming together. And then about three, four years ago, Alex and Vera moved here from Newmarket, Virginia. Now, I thought Newmarket was New Jersey for some reason, so it just didn't make sense how this couple would retire to New Jersey. But when I found out what he had done for a career, I found out that he had worked in Tacoma Park, San, and Hospital in kitchen services for Myrta Corner, my father-in-law's aunt that James Amos Stoneberger, Alex Vera, Alex Varga, and Murda Corner all knew each other and were all working in August of 64 when I was born there. That's a kind of interesting nexus of fact, don't you think? So I was hoping Alex and Vera could hook me up And they did some investigating of their own, talked to some friends back in that part of the country. We never did make a connection with Stoneberger. Well, fast-forwarding back to my PI and and so forth and my wife, what, what I've come to know is that my birth mom lives in a town called Rileyville between Front Royal and Luray. This is nowhere Virginia, basically. But it's on the Shenandoah Valley River, and it's absolutely beautiful over there. And Newmarket is just over the hill. It's where Shenandoah Valley Academy is, the Adventist school there in Virginia. And it's where Alex and Vera lived for many years and and so forth. Beautiful country. So as it turns out, my father-in-law has cousins and friends and family who live in, yes, you guessed it, Rileyville, Luray, and Newmarket. Now, what are the chances of me showing up at a church as an intern, looking at a woman and saying, that works, in part because she reminded me of family somehow. And this became a scary point later on. We were hoping that we really hadn't been family. (laughs) 
Uh, you, you just don't know these things when you're, when you're looking back. Um, what are the chances that I would meet her that her family would be from this part of the world and that her relatives would live and work in these areas where I had been born and where my birth family was from? God does interesting things in our lives. Next text, please. All right, Lance and I will be reading Exodus uh, 2, 1 through 10. I'll be taking the first five, and he'll take the last. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrews' babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, what we just read is perhaps the first, and not, if not the oldest, adoption story in the world. Well, as it turns out, some of the detail my parents had told me about my origins were correct. When I spoke to Marianne for the first time, I found out that she was 19 when I was born, that she was not married, that in fact she had become pregnant while living with her sister and caring for her sister's kids about 50 miles from her home, that there were nine children that, she were, uh, that were siblings, she was one of, And this was a shock to me because the Honus family is minuscule. I mean, there are, what, 500 of us in the United States if if they're... It's an amazingly small family. So to find out that she had been born one of nine was, was, was quite a shock. I asked her if she knew the whereabouts, the name, first of all, of of my birth father. And she indignantly replied that, of course, she did. And was kind enough to give me that name. And I said, do you know where I might locate his parents? And she said, no way to locate them. They died years ago. Why do you want to locate his parents? I said, well, because he's dead. He's not dead, she said. At least not that I know of. Well, shock of shocks. He was not dead. She gave me the name. I called Mr. Swenson. Mr. Swenson got on his computer. In fact, I was actually able to Google the name and find the guy. He got on the computer and found the details. Alive and well in Culpeper, Virginia, about 55 miles from where my birth mom lived. Okay, that was a new wrinkle I wasn't prepared for. He volunteered to call Jesse and see if Jesse wanted to be found, then I said, no way. Dads are kind of strange creatures. Men are kind of strange creatures. I figure we don't really need somebody showing up and saying, Hello, it's me. 
I figure that we're more resistant to the truth in some way than women are. And I figured that the best way to get a man to admit the truth would be to get the woman herself to get it out of him. So I asked Marianne to please contact him and let him know that we had made contact, that I was alive and well, and if he was amenable, I was interested in meeting him. This she did not do. We talked. She sent photos. I sent photos. I wrote a list of questions. She tried to reply. And I got impatient. And I called Rick Rothler one day and I said, I've got to go on some personal business for a few days. I'll be back in time for Sabbath services. So this last week was an anniversary of sorts. A year ago, I flew to Virginia and met my birth mom. And of course, it was an emotional reunion. And of course, there was a lot unsaid and a lot said. But we had five days And I thought we would have all five days together. It turns out that on the third day, we drove down to Culpeper. She had not made contact with him, so I wasn't going to show up and say hello. But we drove by his house, and he was sitting in the driveway. And I knew instantly who the man was. We drove back around and back around and decided on the third pass to pull into the driveway. I got out of the car and I said, I am Greg Honus, you don't know who I am, but I'm guessing you know who this woman here is. Well, 44 years passing more or less is a long time. Weight gain, facial drop, wrinkling, so forth take their toll, don't they? And it took a minute. But I could tell as I was walking up that he looked like a ghost had just smacked him in the face. I didn't find out why until much later. Much later, I ended up getting a picture of his father who died when he was my age. His father and I could be twins. We could play Who's Your Daddy all day long and I would win every time. There was no question. Marianne said, you remember me? I'm Marianne, and this is your son, Greg. And he looked at me, and it wasn't like, yeah, right. Nothing. I thought the man was going to faint. We went inside. We visited for a couple of hours. His wife, Jerlene, came over. She was lovely. We spent time visiting, and I agreed to come down my last day uh, that I was going to be in Virginia and have breakfast with them and visit with them. He has two children, uh, so I have a half-sister and a half-brother. And uh, my birth mom has one child, 10 years younger than I am, a sister, a half-sister also. So I got to meet, meet some extended family while I was back there too, but I, I didn't meet Jesse's family at this go-around, uh, just to be, to be clear. Well, we talked for a couple of hours. We went back uh, up to Rileyville, and I came down to uh, see Jesse on um, my way out of town, had breakfast with the family. Warren, and, uh, Warren was not there, but Wendy was, and her husband, Ron. And uh, it was nice of them to take the day off and, and spend some time with me. When we think about this whole thing, there's a terrible rending of soul that takes place 
when baby and mother are separated. And I think that's the primal wound of adoption. And I think that's felt in some way, no matter how loved or cared for you are. There's always those nagging questions of, why do I have this characteristic when my family does not? And I could give you a couple of examples. Music comes fairly readily to me, and I love it. That's not necessarily a strong family characteristic. I have almost a perfect memory for color. And I really love art and design, and not particularly something strong in my, my family. I love to travel. I try to go everywhere I can. If you gave me a ticket and said, you have a ticket to India tomorrow, it's only two weeks, but have a good time, I would find a way to take the plane. I love to travel. I love going places and having adventures. And ex- You know, my family maybe made it to Mexico once. It's just... You know, not big travelers. We went back to Indiana and Michigan, which is where my family's relatives all live, and that was about it for vacation. So out of all of this, you have these unanswered questions about where the characteristics you have come from, and then you have these unanswered questions about the family of origin. And I wondered, you know, things like, well, I was born in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Let's see, that's right where the GEC is, right where the Pacific Press is. That's right where Sligo Church is. That's right where Columbia Union College is. Who knows, maybe it was a scandal and my father was a professor or a GC guy. Maybe there's a great deal of shame or embarrassment. Who knows what the real story was. But as I got to meet these folks, the connections became clearer. Marianne's father was raised with his brothers and sisters as a Seventh-day Adventist. He wasn't necessarily practicing. I think he had one particular vice that kept him out of the church, and that was his fondness for chewing tobacco. He still made it to age 93, despite that fondness, uh, and was kind of a stubborn uh, coot in a lot of ways, I guess. But they had a little church there, a Seventh-day Adventist church that the family was buried at and that they claimed as their own. It was... Marianne's father's brother who had worked at Washington Sanon Hospital, which is why Marianne had left that area and gone to Tacoma Park to give birth to me. It was James Amos Stoneberger and a wife of a relative also living there who had persuaded her it was her in her best interest to put me up for adoption. And it was... A rending, I can tell you. She stayed in the area two months trying to figure out how to undo what she had done. Um, very difficult for her to, to talk about even 40 some odd years later. And so I found myself feeling great compassion. I have never felt anger, never felt resentment, uh, never felt these things about my particular case. But... Uh, Interesting how it all came together. Oh, one, one more aside that I, you might find interesting. My sister, living in Camarillo, met another girl who was adopted. Older than her, born in the same hospital I was, delivered by the same doctor I was, had the same story. Dead father, killed in a motorcycle or car accident. That was our first clue that maybe things weren't as they appeared. In any event... What I want you to hear is the way in which I was cared for, just as Moses was cared for. Miriam would have, his mother would have kept him, if at all possible. But with him growing and with the decree to destroy baby boys and so forth, she put him at the mercy of the Nile. She knew 
that her God would look out for her son. And she knew that the gods of the Nile would make this baby a gift to any Egyptian who found her him. And sure enough, the princess did. And you know the story. Out of this difficult circumstance, God made a leader. I'll be reading Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I was put up for adoption with the understanding that I would be adopted by an Adventist family and a doctor. And that's exactly what happened. My mother tells the story, though, that it was very close that I was about to be taken to Pakistan by missionaries, and the State Department didn't like that. So I ended up with the family that I ended up with. There is more, so much more to the story. When I was back in November visiting Marianne, I took her to Tacoma Park. I wanted to go and kind of relive that time with her to see what she could remember and what she could tell me about what she was thinking, why her family seemed so oblivious or so unconnected to what was happening in her life. I went to the homestead and found a one-room house with no electricity and no running water a root cellar in an outhouse. It was where her father had raised his nine children. And at the time that I was to be born, she was living at home and her sister had given birth and the parents were taking care of that child in addition to all of the other kids in the home. There just wasn't resource. There just wasn't room. And so I took her to Tacoma Park to see what had happened there we went to the office where the lawyer had been. We went to uh, see the campus of CUC in the area there where she had walked and, and spent her time waiting. And we found the house where she had lived. It was a duplex of sorts, but it was, there were two identical houses in a row right on the backside of CUC on the road there. And she had lived in the upstairs apartment or room for a good portion of the time that she was living there. Now, I took pictures of all of this, and when I came back at Thanksgiving time last year, I was showing them to my family and to my father-in-law. And he told a very, very interesting and sad story. Turns out his own father had had a severe stroke before he turned 10. It disabled him to the point that he couldn't speak or walk. And with his heart health the way it was and his uh, stroke, strokes, who knows, he was basically unable to work and was an invalid in the home. At some point, he had to be committed to care elsewhere. And I don't know whether it was a convalescent hospital or some other kind of facility. 
But several years later, his mother bearing the burden of caring for the two boys, paying all of the bills, trying to make ends meet, and trying to deal with a husband who wasn't bringing in an income and, in fact, required care. Don came home, my father-in-law came home from school one day to find all of their things on the front lawn. They were evicted. They had nowhere to go. And where they ended up was in a little space upstairs in a house there in Tacoma Park. And when I showed him the picture, it was the same house and the same apartment that Marianne had lived in a decade later. It is an amazing sort of set of connections and circumstances. My own parents, as I said, were from Indiana and Michigan. My father was in the military, drafted as a doctor in Vietnam era. And he had gone to Washington Sanon Hospital to work on a particular specialty or to do an internship of some sort. I never can keep those things straight. Dad, forgive me. He was scheduled to leave in July, but had been given an alternate post that wouldn't be ready for him until late August or September. And the opportunity to came, came to adopt me mid-August. God had something, I think, very specific in mind. When I met my birth family, I met a group of people that were in many ways kind. Very gracious and accepting. Very open. It was a family that obviously uh, had its dysfunctions. What family doesn't? But a family that that stayed in touch and, and remained connected and loved one another. There were values that I could see. This last summer, I took my wife and son back to meet everybody, and we went to a Stoneberger family reunion, and I was pleased to see that the drinking was minimal, that people cleaned up after themselves and kept the park tidy and neat. There were values in that family that mirrored some of the values that I had been raised with. But I didn't find the immediate answers. I didn't find the world traveler I didn't find the one who could do music. I didn't find the person who uh, could stand up week to week in front of a group of people and tell a story. Although I'll tell you, Jesse does have the gift of gab. What I realized in the whole nurture versus nature debate is that my family of origin had given me the raw stuff Not all of it the right stuff, but a lot of it good stuff. That my family, through Adventism and the values that Adventists hold, through religious indoctrination, through a father who was uh, not only very smart, but was interested theologically. I was most fortunate in that I grew up in the 60s and 70s instead of the 80s. What I mean by that is, as you know, in 1980-81, 
that era, Ford and Ray and Davenport, all of these scandals hit the church. They weren't all scandals. They were just things that happened and the way they were handled and treated created great controversy, particularly with Ford. And it became unsafe in the Adventist church to have theological debate and conversation. It became unsafe to question and challenge. And this was the era in which I was in college. My own professors sometimes accused me of demonic thoughts. I have to say that what I was expressing to them was in no way demonic, but that I have had demonic thoughts, just not those thoughts. The fact of the matter is that being raised where I was, it was conservative socially. It was conservative in terms of the standards. It was conservative in terms of orthodoxy. But it was a safe place to have a conversation. And in my father's car, on the way to school and back, we would talk about ideas and ethics and theology and different things of this sort. God had put me in the right place at the right time with the right family who had the right values and the right perspectives and the resources to give me every opportunity to learn, to grow, and to become. Music grew out of the environment that I was in. The talent was there. The raw material was there. But it grew out of the environment in which I was raised. And while I will never be a millionth of what a Moses was, while I will never uh, have the same story that, that some others can tell, God has brought me to a place and to a position out of his generosity and grace and will. In church, I met and married a wife from amongst my people without even knowing it. In adoption, a terrible rending occurred. But I was delivered from a family that had some good stuff going on. But a situation in which I would have been raised in poverty. Probably without a father in my life daily. Without the benefits of religion or education. Nobody has finished college in my birth family. Only one will that I know of, and that's from Brennan's generation. Yeah, smart kid, he's going to go places. They're hardworking. They're ethical. Many, many ways. But no one's finished college. So out of this terrible rending, and the gift that that provided to my parents who could not have children of their own, and the timing of God in which he chose the family in which I was adopted and not some other family in which to be adopted. Out of all of that, I stand before you today. I stand before you today as one with hope and one who is the product of hope. 
one whose parenthood was planned not by virtue of pregnancy but by virtue of God's graces and that's my story for I know the plans I have for you plans declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart I will be found by you declares the Lord I will bring you back from captivity I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you declares the Lord and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. For the Lord our God knows the plans he has for us, and because of that, we are a people of hope.